0: Well, we are continuing our sermon series this morning that we've been sporadically working through uh, thus far this summer, through the uh, infancy section of Luke's gospel, all the way on our way to Luke four sixteen through thirty, which we'll get to by the end of the summer and the end to end of Jeff's sabbatical. Uh, that's where we're going this summer, and today we are in Luke two one through twenty one. We've been entitling this sermon series "The Coming of the King," and then. Today's text, climatically, we'll, we meet the King. The King has finally come in Jesus Christ in the incarnation. My wife also uh, asked me this week why they didn't entitle this text uh, or this, this sermon series Christmas in July. I guess that's another appropriate sermon series title, but uh, uh, so... Anyway, we're going to title this still The Coming of the King, and today we meet the king at last. Um, Next week, we're going to have uh, Vic in the pulpit, just to remind you. I'll be on vacation, uh, so please be praying for Vic for that, too. Well, let's turn to the text this morning, Luke 2, 1 through 21, and please follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading out of the ESV. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that by your Spirit you would meet us today in your word. Father, you know where hearts are at in this congregation. All of us need the gospel, and I pray that you would deliver the gospel to us this morning and that you would help us to apply the gospel to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We know your word is capable of reaching us wherever we're at, and we pray that you would do that this morning as the word is preached. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we started this sermon series, The Coming of the King, more than a month ago, we met right at the outset in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, this average Joe priest, one of about 18,000 in Israel at the time, which is why we called him an average Joe priest, whose name was Zechariah. And he served as a priest in the Jerusalem temple. Remember, Luke starts out his gospel with a brief four-verse introduction, and then immediately after that, we as the reader are thrust into the narrative life of his program and into the heart of the Jerusalem temple. Now, this temple was a grand, imposing structure that stood at the theological and societal heart of Jerusalem. It served, among other things, as a hand of economic aid to the poor. It served as a place of commerce, and theologically... It was the place of atonement for one's sins and where one would go go to be near to God. Jesus even calls it his father's house later in chapter two of Luke's gospel. And then in the narrative section, the very next narrative section, which we'll be looking at in two weeks in Luke's gospel, we find two elderly, pious Jews who are in a sense waiting for God in the temple precincts. The temple was symbolically the place where God made his home on earth and where he dwelt among his people. And as such, it was even said to be the meeting place between heaven and earth, the meeting place between the divine and human in the temple. Now, a building of such magnitude, which represented this exceptional theological reality, must have looked the part too. And it did. Its architecture reinforced its significance. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote a slew of works in first century. He wrote this about the temple. He's describing the temple as it stood in first century Israel, and he writes a brief description about the temple. And let me just read you this brief description. Josephus writes this. He says, Now the outward face of the temple and its front wanted nothing that was likely to surpass either men's minds or their eyes, for it was covered all over The plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun, reflected back a very fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance, like a mountain, covered with snow, for as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceedingly white." Now, this must have been a gorgeous and a beautiful structure that represented the hopes of Israel who are waiting for God to act on their behalf. Remember, we said that there was, we're, we're dealing with 400 years of silence that are at an end when Luke is writing this infancy narrative. Malachi finished, and then we've had 400 years before a prophetic word is heard in Israel, and Israel was looking to this temple for God to act. And if they were waiting for God to act and to remember his promises, there would have been no other place to look but this temple. The Jerusalem temple, they thought would be the stage, an appropriate stage for God to perform his promises. And yet, when we get to our text this morning, we find that the birth of the Son of God and the manifestation of God's glory takes place far outside the Jerusalem temple, far outside this grand structure. Rather than the temple being the meeting place between heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, we find that heaven and earth have come together. This passage that we're looking at this morning is all about God climatically and finally visiting his people again to usher in the last days. The time Israel had waited for, and I might add, what Luke has prepared us for throughout the entirety of chapter 1 has finally dawned in the birth of Jesus Christ. And we'll see shortly that even heaven itself testifies to this reality. But again, instead of looking at the temple for God to work his promises, Luke tells us, essentially, look to Jesus. And this passage tells us quite a bit about just what this unconventional and unexpected climactic journey or climactic visit in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, means for the people of God, and what it brings for you and I who stand two millennia later. Now there's a lot we could say about the incarnation. We could, we could mine the depths of this truth of the incarnation and really never reach the bottom. But just from this text, there are three things, three implications, three things that I want us to see that work out of the incarnation for God's people. Those things are, in the incarnation, God's people are given peace, God's people are given conflict, and God's people are given a call. So first, in the incarnation, God's people are given peace. Now let's look back at the text and just really follow the ebbs and flows of the text. When we look at this passage, at least in the first seven verses, one thing that's remarkable is that the actual birth of the Son of God and the events leading up to that actual birth of the Son of God doesn't really involve a whole lot of drama. Now, there will be drama, and we'll get to that when we look at verse 8 and following, but the way Luke paints the context of the birth followed by the birth itself, we don't see a whole lot of explicit drama. Looking specifically just at verses 1 through 7 right now, We first learn a little bit about the historical context when Luke starts out in the first two verses. Then we meet Joseph for the first time. He plays more of a significant role in Matthew's gospel than he does in Luke, but nevertheless, he's here. And then we learn that Joseph and Mary must have been good, law-abiding citizens who obey the laws of Rome by traveling to Bethlehem. And finally, when they're in Bethlehem, Mary gives birth to a son. The narrative in these first seven verses is rather straightforward and to the point. Now, it's possible that there was more drama. If we wanted to maybe get behind the text and do a little bit of imagination, perhaps there was more drama to the journey and to the birth itself. After all, Mary and Joseph are traveling something like 80 miles while Mary's pregnant. That's pretty dramatic. And for the actual birth itself, Mary's not getting an epidural. As a, as a husband and a father myself, let me say, there must have been drama. <clears throat> but. While Luke doesn't yet paint for us drama, he does highlight for us something else. He highlights in these first seven verses the meekness of this birth, and thus the meekness of this child. Jesus, as we'll see in these first seven verses, is born into an incredibly low and meek and lonely situation. And perhaps it's Luke's desire at this point to paint the meekness of the birth and place it in the context of human history that leads him to forego the drama until verses eight and following. So let's look real quickly at just verses one through seven and just focus on the meekness of what's taking place in this text. We learn in verse seven that Jesus is born first in a stable that would have been reserved for animals. And the manger in which he's laid is actually a feeding trough for these animals. Furthermore, the only characters Luke tells us about at the birth are Mary and Joseph. There's no nurses that we learn of, nobody else really to assist in the birth. So Luke paints for us a very sad, a very lonely, but at the same time, a very ordinary birth of the Son of God. On the surface, there's nothing especially glorious about it. It's just meek and sad and lonely, right? But then... As the narrative progresses to the next section, starting in verse 8 and following, we, we read about these shepherds in the field, and we're given heaven's testimony to the birth of the Son of God. And now, friends, we have drama. <clears throat> it's now as if the curtain is pulled back on this relatively ordinary birth, and we learn that it's actually one of extraordinary significance. After all, this is the Son of God. This is the eternal Son of God who always was, who has now taken on human flesh with all of its apparent weaknesses except for sin. And even though Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are pictured in verse 7 as all alone in a small town and presumably also in the dark of night, in this text, verses 8 and following, we learn that a whole host from heaven actually surrounds this birth. They're not, in fact, alone. God has come at last to his people but by re- rather, than, rather than manifesting his glory upon the temple as he did under Solomon's watch, the glory of God is now manifest in a more climactic way than any of the Old Testament saints ever experienced in this ordinary, lonely, meek birth of this child. And the birth is announced not in the sanctuary of the temple But to shepherds, and we'll learn later that shepherds were just a a notch above the lowest point on the cultural totem pole in first century Israel, the birth is announced to shepherds in a field. So let's look real quick at the content of this announcement, looking specifically at verse 14 in the text, where we discover from the mouth of this heavenly multitude the significance of what's taking place. This is the famous Gloria in excelsis Deo that we sing, verse 14. Where we read, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, the idea here is that in the incarnation, in Jesus taking on flesh, in, in the heavens meeting earth, so to speak, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Heaven is ascribing praise to God. That phrase we read, Glory to God in the highest, isn't a command directed to you and I to give God a lot of glory, although. We should do that. That's important. But rather, the phrase in this text is a description of what is taking place in heaven. In the heavenly places, by virtue of the incarnation, the heavenly places are screaming. They're crying out and giving praise to God. They're heaping praise upon him. And at the same time, the heavens are praising God. At the same time, they're heaping praise upon him. God's people on earth are given peace. Peace. And this is what's meant by that second phrase, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. But this peace is significant. The peace that God's people are given by virtue of the kingdom of God isn't peace as in the absence of conflict. The peace these angels are announcing is actually the biblical ideal of shalom, shalom of human flourishing, of wholeness that's preeminently realized in our salvation. This is a peace, friends, that brings not just a temporary coffee break, not just a week-long vacation somewhere, but true, final rest for God's people. That's the peace that's being proclaimed here. This is the significance of what the incarnation brings for God's people the significance of what happens for God's people when heaven meets earth. Heaven meets earth, you and I, friends, as the people of God, are given wholeness and human flourishing in and through Jesus Christ, preeminently realized in our salvation. And it's in the incarnation that we learn something else, something foundational to this peace that we're given and also foundational to the gospel itself. And that is that in the incarnation, Jesus identifies with his people by entering into the mess and muddle of real life. It's interesting that three times in this passage, Luke draws our attention to the feeding trough, the manger, where Jesus lays. Now, on the one hand, this passage, the birth of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, it's all about Jesus, so it would make sense for Luke to draw our attention to Jesus. That's a no-brainer, but... It would be easy easy for us to miss that Luke is, is drawing our attention to Jesus, but he's also, he's actually drawing our attention to where Jesus is laid. By drawing our attention to this, by drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is laid in a manger, Luke is also drawing our attention to the type of Savior who has entered human history. Friends, this is a Savior who has come to identify with his people, to identify with the likes of you and I. In fact, Jesus undergoing circumcision at the tail end of our passage in verse 21 is Jesus identifying with his covenant people through undertaking the sign or the mark of the covenant. This is the Savior who has come in the world to identify with his people. And as the author of Hebrews tells us later in the New Testament significantly, because he's able to identify with us, he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. The Incarnation tells us that we have a Savior, friends, who humbled himself to live in a fallen and broken world and as such experienced suffering like we do. Jesus also experienced in the Incarnation sorrow like we do too. Remember the shortest verse in the Bible, after Jesus' dear friend Lazarus dies in the Gospel according to John, Jesus weeps, Right In the Incarnation, Jesus steps into the human drama with all of its pain and brokenness, and he experienced the full weight of that pain and brokenness turned on him at the cross. The Incarnation, friends, informs us that we have a Savior who knows our pain, who knows our suffering, and who knows what it's like to live in a sinful and in a broken world. And the author of Hebrews again tells us, because of this, we have a brother in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, friends, and this is important, we have a Savior who came not merely to identify with us, but to save us out of our sin and misery. This is what's meant when we refer to Jesus as the faithful high priest. Again, echoing the language of the book of Hebrews. Just like a priest stands as a mediator between God and And man, so too Christ stands as the ultimate mediator between God and man, offering not the blood of an ox, but the blood of himself. The incarnation tells us, friends, that God, the God of the universe, has stooped down into the mess and muddle of our lives, into the human condition. He got his hands dirty, even, so to speak, in order to bring restoration. And for God's people, this work of restoration is underway even now. Bring for us shalom, true human flourishing. Because Christ assumed flesh and lived the life that we should have lived, we get to experience the shalom that he merited in and through our salvation. In the incarnation, we're given peace. And this leads to our second point. Second, in the incarnation, God's people are given conflict. In short, the kingdom of God that Jesus brings, begun at the incarnation, confronts every other kingdom of this world. In the first two verses of our passage this morning, Luke orients us to the historical background of the birth of the Son of God. And he tells us that this birth took place during, quote, the reign of Caesar Augustus, that We're right at the outset in verse 1. Now, Caesar Augustus, he was born by the name of Octavian Caesar. Augustus was a name given to him later in his life, which meant something like holy or revered. He came to power about 30 years prior to Jesus, and he would continue to reign for another 15 years. So he had a pretty lengthy reign as emperor of Rome. Now, Caesar Augustus, uh, it was also during his time that the Roman Republic, as it was known at the time, was transformed into an empire, and along with the prestige for Rome and the prestige for Caesar Augustus himself, his rule and his reign was generally known at the time as a peaceful rule or a peaceful reign, though importantly, one commentator notes this would have been more like a Hitler peace than a positive form of peace that we think of today. Nevertheless, it was also under Augustus's rule that Caesar's became, the, the title Caesar, the, the emperor of Rome, became deified as gods. I'm told that there's actually an ancient ascription in some town uh, somewhere, I don't know where, uh, that hails Augustus Caesar as divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator of land and sea, and benefactor and savior of the whole world. Augustus was a ruler, who had established a firm grip on his power, in part by getting rid of all of his political rivals. And as the inscription I just read indicates, he also had quite an inflated view of himself, didn't he? Yet it's against this backdrop, importantly, that the real savior of the world is born. And the real prince of peace is born. And when the heavens announce the, the birth in verse 8 and following, it also heaven also declares the identity of who Jesus is. And this is important. In verse 11, the angel announces to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now these three titles, Savior, Christ, and Lord, They're loaded with Old Testament freight and expectations, and we can mine the book of Isaiah, for instance, and really get to the bottom of what all of these are. But in light of the historical context that I just read and we spent a lot of time just looking at, they're also an affront to Rome, aren't they? Caesar was referred to as savior of the world. Caesar was referred to as lord. Caesar Augustus was a king of peace in some warped sense of the term, and yet in a manger in Bethlehem, a far greater, more benevolent king who brings a much realer form of peace has come. The kingdom of God, friends, Jesus brings in its aim and virtues stands in conflict with every other kingdom of the world. Whereas other kingdoms and other kings, like Caesar, for instance, seek victory and influence by overpowering enemies or by crushing the weak or asserting rights, the kingdom of God, calls it citizens, calls you and I to engage the world differently, primarily so through sacrificial love, which is what the Apostle Paul calls later in one of his letters the chief of all virtues and the goal of the Christian life. And in the incarnation, we see this ethic of sacrificial love that stands in conflict every other kingdom demonstrated, and we're met with the reality that sacrificial love is at the heart Of the kingdom of God. Now although we as citizens of this kingdom of God that Jesus brings, although we will never love to the same degree as Christ has, we have to remember that our calling to love the imperative of the Christian life, we might say, flows out of the indicative of how Christ has loved us first. But nevertheless, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're called to make sacrificial love the heart of everything that we do. Now, there are endless methods and contexts and various ways that love, sacrificial love, plays itself out in the Christian life. But I just want to illustrate for us one quick point from church history and draw a few points from that. So let me let me illustrate this. Sociologist Rodney Stark, in his book The Rise of Christianity, a, a really good book, I encourage you to pick it up and read it, he provides us with many examples from early church history of how Christians, early Christians excelled in love, in this this form of sacrificial love, which was also, by the way, a a great witness to the watching world at the time. But just as one example, Rodney Stark notes that at one point there was a plague in the second century. And Rodney Stark draws our attention to a a man who lived during that plague, a Christian named Dionysius, who was the Bishop of Corinth. And Stark Stark Quotes for us from Dionysius, the bishop of Corinth, about what Dionysius observed, how the Christians were acting in the midst of this plague as compared to how everybody else was acting during this plague. So I want to read from you just a brief excerpt from what Dionysius says, what his observations are as he's watching this plague unfold in in the second century, and he's seen how Christians are acting versus how everybody else is acting. Let me read you real quickly what Dionysius, the bishop of Corinth, writes. He writes this. He writes, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they, the Christians, took charge of the sock, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they, the Christians, were infected by others "'with the disease, drawing on themselves "'the sickness of their neighbors "'and cheerfully accepting their pains. "'Many in nursing and caring others "'transferred their death to themselves "'and died in their stead. "'The heathen behaved in the opposite way,' Dionysius writes. "'At the first onset of the disease, "'they pushed the sufferers away "'and fled from their dearest, "'throwing them into the roads before they were dead "'and treated unburied corpses as dirt.' hoping thereby to avert the spread of the contagion of fatal disease, but do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now the point of this illustration, I'll add at the beginning, isn't to argue that nobody but Christians are capable of sacrificial or brave acts. The point of of me quoting this isn't to argue that, nor is the point to try to argue that this is always how Christians have acted in church history, right? Anyone with a cursory knowledge of church history knows that there were, and there still are, a ubiquity of absolutely embarrassing ways that Christians have acted throughout history. Nor again is the point to show that the only way we as Christians exercise the virtue of love is by taking care of the sick, Nor again is the point to show that sacrificial love is a painless and happy and cheerful endeavor, as Dionysius' language might suggest to us. But the point of this illustration is to show that sacrificial love, which is indeed very costly and in times incredibly painful and can sometimes even cost us our lives, is at the heart of the kingdom of God. It makes up the very fabric and the DNA of the kingdom of God that Jesus brings. And as such, it needs to be at the very heart and fabric of what we do and how we live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And it's in this way that the kingdom of God stands in, stands in tension with every other kingdom of this world, whatever those kingdoms might be. As Christians, we don't practice love to the extent that we receive love from one another, do we? As Christians, we're called to exercise sacrificial love because Christ exercised sacrificial love for us by leaving the right hand of his father, his rightful, right, his rightful place, and condescending to people like you and I. And in fact, this is, the, this is the very movement that Paul takes, the apostle Paul takes in Philippians 2, where he grounds our calling as Christians to bold love in the humiliation of Christ found begun in the resur- or begun in the incarnation. So let me ask you this, does the way you love and the extent to which you love look different from the way the kingdoms of the world exercise love? Friends, we're called to this sacrificial, costly love, not because it's easy, in fact, it's the exact opposite of easy and often the exact opposite of cheerful and happy. But we're called to this because it's a reflection of how boldly we have been loved in Jesus Christ. And this leads to our final point, shorter point. Third, by virtue of the incarnation, and really by virtue of the entirety of Christ's work, of his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, God's people, you and I, are issued a call. We have a call. Notice that after the shepherds are confronted with the reality of what takes place among them, and after they see this child Jesus laying in a manger, they're compelled to proclaim to make known what they had seen and heard. Notice in verse, in verse 17 and 18, just to continue to reorient us to the text, we read this. And when they saw it, they made it known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now we're not told to whom the shepherds proclaimed, nor are we told about their success or even maybe their lack of success in their proclamation. Did people believe what they had to say? Well, we just don't know. But what is clear from this text is that the presence of God in Christ calls for proclamation. When we meet Christ, and we meet the reality of the shalom that he brings in and through the kingdom of God, there's a natural movement to proclaim what we have seen and heard to the world. And I find it especially interesting that these shepherds who like I said previously in the sermon culturally speaking they would have been just a notch above the lowest point on the cultural totem pole in terms of respect and influence they're compelled to proclaim what they had seen and heard despite any la- despite a lack of any natural influence these aren't kings or priests or scribes they aren't respected and yet they still proclaim Furthermore, while it's impossible to say what these shepherds knew and what they didn't know, again, they certainly weren't theologians, they weren't priests, they weren't scribes, and they probably couldn't articulate a full-fledged biblical theology of how Jesus Christ was the amen to Israel's story. And yet, simply by virtue of meeting Jesus Christ, they proclaim. The application that springs from this is that despite how much we know or don't know, despite how much influence we think we have or don't have, if we've met Christ as he's freely offered to us in the gospel, we have something to proclaim. I think of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2-2, where he writes to the church in Corinth, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul knew quite a bit. He, he was the, a theologian par excellence, wasn't he? But even Paul condescends and proclaims the gospel the power of God works through his message, the gospel message, as delivers to us in the scriptures. And when we're proclaiming that message, when we're proclaiming the scriptures and the gospel, God will use that. Well, while proclamation is part of our call, this text indicates we have another call as Christians. Namely, that when we meet Jesus, we're also called to meditate our entire lives on just who he is. Notice that after Mary gives birth to Jesus and the shepherds pay her a visit, the text tells us that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, Mary had seen a lot, hadn't she? Especially all throughout chapter 1. Mary had been visited by the angel Gabriel, who announced Jesus' birth and the theological significance to that birth. Mary visited her relative Elizabeth some 80 miles north and was greeted by her jubilant, almost prophetic expression of praise concerning who this child in her womb would be. And then she traveled with Joseph another 80 to 100 miles to give birth to this child, Jesus, receiving these shepherd visitors immediately after. Mary had seen a lot. She had experienced a lot. She had an angel come to her and tell her what's going on with all of this stuff that's happening in her lives in her life, and yet she is still pondering all of these things in her heart. Friends, the entirety of the Christian life is a journey of continual meditation over the gospel, over the incarnation, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and what it means for our lives. And as we dive into the beautiful complexity of the gospel and the person of Jesus who stands at the center of this gospel, we're called to allow the truth of who Christ is and who he declares you and I to be as children of the Most High, to wash over our hopes, wash over our dreams, our sin, our idolatry, to wash over all that we are and to allow to transform the way we view ourselves, the way we view the world, the way we view one another. We never move past the gospel. Like Mary, when we meet Christ, there will be no end to pondering the significance and reflecting upon just who he is. He is, as we learn from this text, the eternal Son of God who condescended to his people in the incarnation. But he's also the God who in Christ lived the life that we should have lived in our place, died the death that we should have died, and was raised as the first fruit of resurrection life that we too will one day experience as the people of God. And this day, friends, will come when heaven climatically and finally meets earth at the end of human history, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ and for what the incarnation means and gives to us as the people of God. We ask, Father, that as we leave here today and Go about our our daily the daily rhythms of life to which you've called us that that we too like Mary would be meditating on how the gospel applies to our hopes to our dreams to our sin and to our idolatry, and then as we as we're confronted deeper and deeper and further and further with the love of Jesus Christ as found in the gospel, would you also lead us to proclaim it? Would you give us people in our lives to whom we can proclaim? and to to give them, to proclaim to them the hope that we have, the only hope that we have, which is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.